0: Uh so um I started reading Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls and it is so good. It's, oh my god, it is so so good. Applaud that, yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh my gosh. It just was I mean, from the very first page I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, I'm just I'm gonna go on a journey with this writer and um so I'm looking forward to uh seeing seeing how it how it ends. We're very happy to have Tikira Madden here. She is an um, Asian Pacific Islander American writer, photographer, and amateur magician. She is the founding editor-in-chief of No Tokens and facilitates writing workshops from uh, for homeless and formerly incarcerated individuals. A 2017 NYSCA and NYFA artist fellow in nonfiction literature. She has received fellowships from McDowell Colony, Hedgebrook Tin House, Disquiet Summer Literary Seminars, and Yado, where she was selected for the 2017 Linda Collins um, Endowed Residency Award. She lives in New York, New York City, um, but we're like really happy to have her here in Los Angeles, um, where she teaches at Sarah Lawrence College. Um, she will read for about 10 minutes, and then she'll be joined um, by uh, Allie B- Bottom. And I love this cover, and I'm looking forward to reading this too. Look at this, Jello. Jello Girls. That's such a. This is already makes me want to read it. Um, doctor Allie Robottom. <laughs> doctor, I love saying that. Doctor Ali Robottom received her BA from New York University, her MFA from the California Institute of the Arts, and her PhD in Creative Writing and Literature from the University of Houston. Her work has garnered prizes and honorable mentions from Tin House, the Best American Essay Series, the Florida Review, the Bellingham Review, the Black Warrior, Black Warrior Review, the Southampton Review, and Hunger Mountain. She is a recipient of the imprint Marion Bartelmi Prize in Creative Writing. But she lives right here in Los Angeles. Please welcome Tikira and Ali.
1: for coming. Here, Allie. oh, Allie's not going to read tonight, but I just wanted to say, please pick up her book. She is a fantastic writer, not only as a writer, but as a person, is a real compass for me as a writer and person, a true friend, and her writing is just gorgeous. You can flip to any page of that book and be completely floored by her language and her care, and I'm so happy you could be here. So. My pleasure, absolutely. Thank you. And thank you all for coming, and thank you, Skylight. It's really nice to see so many people I know. <laughs> that hasn't been the case on this tour. Um, so I was told before I went on tour to choose one piece and read the same piece every night to make my life easier. And I don't like when people tell me what to do, so... Um, <laughs> It's now become a goal of mine to read a different piece every night of this tour. And a goal to get through every single piece in the book on the tour. So I'm going to read one of the heaviest pieces tonight because I have some of my oldest and truest friends here and it feels like a good space, so sorry for that. Um, But thanks for listening. Um, I'm going to read just an excerpt of it because it's long. And if you have read this essay before, I will not get to the very explicit graphic scene, but please feel free to step out if you feel like you need to. That's totally fine with me Um, and supported by me. So this is called The Feels of Love. A senior thinks you're cute, Beth, Beth Diaz whispers in your ear. These are the most amazing words you've ever heard come out of her mouth. There is you, and then there are high school seniors, 17, 18 years old with cars and sound systems, no uniforms on Fridays because they are now exempt. You ask, who, who, your abdomen burning up with this news, and she whispers again, shh, it's Chad, that's who, because her friends, brothers, cousins, babysitters said so. Something like that, but it doesn't matter to you. A senior thinks you're cute. And who are you? You are still a middle schooler, 12 years old, almost 13. You have two friends, four horses, a new splatter of acne across your forehead. You don't even wear a bra yet. Lately, you are known as Queera or Twinkie Chinky, but now everything is different. Everything will change your shirt. A senior thinks you're cute. Here's what you do when you come home from school. Find Chad in last year's yearbook. Call Clarissa and Beth on three-way to tell them you found him. Look, page 49, you say. And they agree. You have never seen anyone more beautiful than Chad. His eyes are squinty and green like the deep end of a lake. His black hair spiked. The yearbook shows him laughing with a group of friends sprawled out on a school picnic table in the sun. They look so much like adults you can't even believe it. He's going to instant message you tonight, says Beth. I gave my friend's brother's cousin's babysitter your screen name to give to him. You all scream into the phone. You scream a scream that brings your father into the room, soggy from a nap, yelling, the fuck is happening? You jacking up my phone bill? He closes the door before you can answer. Here's the thing. Also, you have permission to laugh, if any part of this (laughs) feels funny. (laughs) Um, It was my goal in this book for... Tragedy and comedy to kind of walk hand in hand, so don't feel like that's inappropriate. You have my full permission. In fact, it makes me feel better. <laughs> Here's the thing about America Online, about the instant messaging. You can be anyone. Dominique Mochianu, Brittany Spears' cousin, a milkmaid from Mississippi, a criminal. Anyone but yourself. Recently, the jealous ex-boyfriend of a popular girl from school, Such a Creeper, uploaded some photos of her onto an AOL homepage. They show the girl lying on her stomach on a bed, her pink thong blooming. Slats of light curve over her body from the bent window blinds. She wears dark blue eyeshadow, her hair in a white blonde ponytail, her pointer finger is in her mouth. You and Clarissa have been sending these photos to the anonymous men you meet online in chat rooms, and they're all crazy about this so-called Ashley Flowers, a 10th grader from downtown Miami. They send erotic poems, photos of the stirring bulges in their pants, hyphen roses that blossom into at symbols. One man named Richard sends a blurry photo of his cock next to a Coke can for scale. True. In the dark with your face inches from the screen, you feel like each of these men might love you. On the news, John Benet Ramsey does a dance. Her case is still open years later and everyone still cares. You watch her stamped on face, clickety-clack cowboy boots, the tools, her curls of shredded heaven. You strap on your headgear, hook the elastic behind your big ears. One has to be so beautiful to be chosen like that, you think. Only beautiful girls are taken, angelic white girls adored and obsessed over, too good for this earth. Your parents sip their seltzers, hold hands and say, such a damn shame, so cute she was. It is important to the story to know that Beth is beautiful. Beth is Latina, whip-smart, a salsa dancer, the first poet you've ever met. But most important, she's beautiful. She's almost one full year older, the oldest of the seventh graders, while you are the youngest. She's always been kind to you and Clarissa, and you're both as jealous as you are grateful. Beth has friends, admiring teachers and parents. Most of all, she has boys. You and Clarissa watch it happen in the hallways at school, a boy's arms wrapped around her, his little metal mouth going in for a kiss. I put lotion on as soon as I get out of the shower, Beth says, in every place. The best revenge is smelling good. <laughs> the next day, you and Clarissa go to the mall and buy the same Juniper Breeze lotion as Beth. Raise of hands for Juniper Breeze. <laughs> okay, I've been taking polls. Cucumber melon? Cucumber melon? Vanilla girls? Okay. Thanks, Asia. <laughs> you smudge it on your wrists, rub it through your hair to grease down the flyaways. You slick it between your legs even though it stings there. One weekend Beth offers to do your makeup do your makeup like her own. You and Clarissa sit still as figurines while Beth paints on the glitter powders, goops on gloss. She traces black lines around your eyes and inside the rims of your eyelids and you can tell she cares that she wants you to feel more sophisticated, older. When she's this close to your face, you almost kiss her. Chad does instant message you. Instant message you every night in fact, like clockwork. "Hey cherry top," he says, because 7th grade is the grade you dyed your hair Mars red to offset the braces. Hey you, is what you always say. You sounds adult, closer than friends. I think you're so cute, he says. The first thing I noticed about you was your red hair, very punk, I love it. (laughs) Cute, rolling on the floor laughing my ass uh, ass off. (laughs) Look who's talking, LOL, you say. You gnaw at your cuticles and wait for him to respond for the bloop sound of his messages. You have abandoned all your other chatroom boyfriends. Ashley Flowers is dead you say. This is her mother speaking and she is gone. My sadness is uncontrollable. I can't bear it. She was murdered. She had leukemia but didn't want to tell you. She slipped on a ski slope in Tahoe, such a tragic vacation. It changes every day. You and Clarissa receive wonderful emails from Ashley's suitors, how much she meant to them, how she was the bright light of their days, how they've written ballads in her honor, how they would each marry her, they would. Clarissa takes on the role of Ashley's grieving best friend so she can continue chatting with those who show the most sincerity. But you don't need any of them anymore. All you need is Chad, a person in the real world, a real man who drives a real car. Chad, who knows what you look like, who noticed you, who even knows your school schedule and where you take your study hall. You and Chad chat all night about your favorite movies and Bill Clinton and the science teacher you've both had. I think she might be an actual lesbo, you say. And he agrees, such a dyke, lol. I think you might be the only person to understand me, you say. Same here, says Chad. Why aren't we friends and real friends at school then? You don't even say hi. People would judge, LOL. They wouldn't understand us, I guess. Baby, just consider us special friends, he says, our own little secret. Baby, you repeat the word aloud to yourself. Read and reread it on your screen to be sure. Your heart thumps between your legs, baby. Secrets can be the most fun, he says. Fifteen years later, you are 27 years old, and your father has just died. You're in an isolated artist colony in New Hampshire in the frozen snap of winter, here to finish another project you have failed to finish. And you sob yourself to sleep every night thinking about how much you miss your father, his big sweeping arms, your smallness. You go so long without talking to other people, you begin having conversations with a rocking chair, convinced the chair is haunted by your father. While browsing through old emails one night, you find an old message in your spam box. It's Chad. It's dated one year ago, almost to the day. It says, I need you to forgive me for the things that have happened. It is my one wish. You recognize this message. You've received similar messages from him over the years. Delete, block, vomit, repeat. Each time you block one, Chad creates a new account and name, sends another You have never once considered responding to his pleas. The few people you have ever told say don't, don't you dare, forget you ever saw that. It is satisfying to delete his words, to watch them disappear, but here's the thing, you can't forget you ever saw that. Now though you are the saddest you have ever been in your life, your father is dead, your mother is off the wagon again, you can't finish anything. Just last week, your childhood house burned down with everything in it. You wonder when the world will stop hurting you. You respond. Chad is my boyfriend, Beth tells you on the phone. I didn't want to tell you because I didn't want your hopes and dreams to be, like, totally crushed. I like that you like that he liked you, she says. It was cute. But Chad's my secret boyfriend, and it's serious, she says. Maybe even love, she says. She says you need to move on. Clarissa can't believe it. You're sitting in the school locker room, straddling a bench, snapping bubblicious gum. Yesterday, you decided to dye your hair back to black, your natural color. You want to look sad all the time, and you think this will help. Your ears are stained gray from the dripping chemicals. That bitch, says Clarissa. Who does she think she is? She's probably making it up because she's crazy jealous of you. You both allow the lie to sit between you, to swell there. But Chad doesn't stop messaging. In fact, he messages you more. He is sorry, just so sorry that he never told you about his girlfriend, Beth. He didn't want to break up your best friendship. Do you have a private line, he asks you, to talk like adults? If I get off AOL, I can free up the line, yeah, you say. It's the first time you've ever heard his voice. At school, he has only ever looked at you through the classroom windows, from inside his car, across a swarm of students moving through the bells. He has never once even waved. His voice on the phone does not match what you'd imagined. It's high-pitched, ragged as puberty. His laugh sounds like Pee Wee Herman crying, you tell Clarissa. (laughs) It's true. Are you in bed, asked Chad. I want to talk to you... I want to talk you to sleep like I'm tucking you in. Chad wants to know what you're wearing under the covers, if you know what sex is, if you've ever given a blowjob, and if so, to whom. Aren't those questions you should be asking your girlfriend, you say. What I have with Beth doesn't change the way I feel about you, says Chad. I can't even talk to her anymore, you say. It's too painful. I have another friend who thinks you're cute. We both beat off to you, he says. Maybe if you like him, we could go on a double date. The four of us could always be together in secret. That way I can still be close to you because I think I might love you, he says. I love you too, you say. You like the gravity of that word. You feel sure inside of it. Chad looks older now in his online picture. His face is bloated, hairy. The whites of his eyes have gone red. The picture is one he took of himself on a phone in a splattered bathroom mirror. You respond to his message. You say, why do you want my forgiveness? I don't know. I guess I just feel bad, he says, about the way things happened. Why, you say again. I didn't know if I should act on the feels of love for you, he says, and I chose wrong. Anyway, I can't believe you would still be mad about this now after all this time. Beth didn't care. He's lonely, you think, or maybe desperate. He only wants a way back in. You've heard rumors about his life after high school. Everyone has. I was 12, you say. Those things don't go away. In my defense, he says, I thought you were 13. I'll stop there. Thank you.
2: Thank you for reading that. It was gorgeous. Thanks for receiving that. So I guess what we're going to do is I have some questions for Kira, and then we'll open it up to you all for a little while, and then we'll call it a night. Yeah. Um, so to just sort of to begin with, I, like many of us, um, I'm just so blown away by this book and its incredible range, it really does um, span from humor to tragedy and covers every possible emotional plane in between. Um, But I wanted to start sort of with this idea of the book as a memoir and maybe coming from my own experiences uh, having written a memoir and maybe also as being a a woman writer. I wanted to just sort of see, from Kira, how the book feels to you. Does it feel like a memoir? Does it feel like a collection of essays? I mean, obviously, categories belong to the marketplace, but I'm just curious, what is this book to you? How do you see it?
1: I think categories do belong, those boxes belong to the marketplace, and I really struggled with that in the beginning. I wrote the book as a collection of essays, and then it was called a memoir, and I I felt some pushback with that, and I felt like you know I had this I had this arrogance um, and inexperience and and amateur thinking because i wasn 't well versed in memoir, and I thought that cheapens it somehow. Mm-hmm. essays are more sophisticated they're more they're taken more seriously, and so I felt resistance to that, and then I realized through really just reading great memoirs for the past few years and educating myself and getting over that amateur arrogance, that memoirs are doing some of the most innovative, beautiful, stylistically interesting um, things happening in books right now. And everyone's breaking traditional form and everyone's playing with structure and fragmentation Mm -hmm. and, and doing... You know, The Fact of the Body by Alex Marzano-Lesnovich is true crime, kind of woven with memoir in this, like, really exquisite way. And I realized, like, wow, this is some of the most interesting stuff. And that resistance is is such stupidity. (laughs) Um, So I've learned to embrace that just by learning more about it. And I'm actually really... um, grateful that I wasn't classically trained in nonfiction and memoir because I think I brought my fiction background and wrote the best book I could write and because of that I think it's a little different Mm -hmm. um because I had no idea what it was supposed to be if that makes sense
2: absolutely I mean I think that shows my next question was actually you know you were trained as a fiction writer what were the tools from that practice that you brought to this I mean obviously all of them but what in particular?
1: Yeah, I don't think that's obvious to most people. I think it's obvious to you because you're a writer and because we... I know you. Yeah, <laughs> you know me and we've had these discussions. But I think um, people think about nonfiction and memoir as existing on a different plane than fiction. Um, there's this false idea that we're kind of like nailing down true experience and memory onto the page and we're not using the same skill sets than we are in fiction writing. But for me, and I think for most people, that's not true. I'm using the same tools that I learned in fiction. I'm still developing character in a fully dimensional way, I hope. I'm still creating scene. I'm still recreating dialogue. Because this idea that we're nailing down actual memory is, is false. I mean, you're a memoir writer. Yeah. You know, and you had a document you were working with, but, and I had journals, but you can't actually get, you have to imagine.
2: You have absolutely. to use the same
1: imagination, the same scene-building skills.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, it's such an odd expectation, I think, that some readers have that one wouldn't do that because I really don't understand how else memory could be written. Can you talk a little bit about tense in this book? And mm-hmm. I mean, these are really craft um, craft-oriented questions, but I'm just so fascinated by how Dekira managed to to write this book that I really want the audience to know.
1: Yeah, I was thinking there's a lot of drama in the book with different members of my family and different people in my life. But I think the drama I'm most interested in as a reader is the drama between different versions of the self. And that might sound a little narcissistic, but I think it's just really something we can hold on to as, as people. That we disagree with choices we've made at different points in our lives, and we hope for different things at, for future versions of ourselves. And um, Samuel Beckett's Craps Last Tape was a really important piece for me. That's probably my favorite piece of writing in the world. And the premise is it's a one person show, and Crapp um, makes recordings every year on his birthday about what his year has been like. And that same day on his birthday, he listens to a previous recording from a random year of his life, and he records the new one for the future version of himself. And when I saw that for the first time, I was like, wow, like, this is the most <laughs> dramatic thing I've ever seen, and all the drama is between past, present, and future self. Like, How amazing is that? That's so true to humanity yeah. without bringing in all the excess drama. So I have excess drama, but I think I wanted the tense to function. Um, for those different versions of me, um, I see them as one character, but different variations of that character, and I wanted to create kind of friction and electricity between those versions of the self and I wanted interjections and I wanted you know present wisdom and sensitivity to kind of plug into past scenes where I know what's going to happen, and I wanted the past version to come into the present, if that makes sense
2: absolutely, and I think it's really successful i'm continually in awe of that because I've tried multiple times to write memoir in present tense and failed miserably so it's fascinating that you made it work Um, sort of in relationship to that I'm really wondering how you approached the writing of trauma and traumatic memory and if that had Anything to do with your decision to sort of fragment in places um, or to break with chronology or to to use tense the way that you do? I mean, I think, and I we probably both go over this with our students a lot, but there is a particular challenge posed to writers by rendering traumatic memory in a way that feels um, accessible to readers and also true to the experience without, you know, being over too much to bear I think
1: Mm -hmm. I think pacing is probably the number one thing I think about when I'm writing about trauma when do I speed up a scene and when do I slow it down Mm -hmm. and I find that usually whatever I want to do I need to lean into its opposite if I want to speed through it I need to slow down Um, if I want to linger on something it's usually uninteresting and I need to (laughs) speed it up (laughs) Um, but I found that especially true with trauma. Like, um, I think our impulse as people is we want to rush through those moments we want in, in our minds and memories and imaginations. Sometimes that's a really loud moment. And I think often what we need to do is to lean into the, the quietude of those moments and to kind of slow the pace. Um, but it's it's hard to balance, you know, readers are really important for that, saying this is too much, but I mostly didn't have that issue. I wrote as much as I could, and I felt like I needed to put it all out there to be honest to the story. Yeah,
2: I really recommend readers finishing the essay that Kira just started reading, um, you know, to see that in action. Um, it's an amazing piece. Um, I sort of wanted to know, well, actually I'm gonna backtrack. Um, can you speak a little bit about the recent essay that you published in Lit Hub against catharsis and how that fits in with this book? Sure.
1: Um, kind of ties into the first question a little bit. I think with nonfiction and memoir, especially about trauma, I, I'm, I've received the question a lot of like, was this therapeutic for you? Was it cathartic? And I think those things can certainly occur and exist, but I think sometimes, it can be a reductive way of talking about nonfiction and memoir as if that's the only purpose. For me, I don't I I journal for myself, um, but I write work that I publish for dialogue. I write it for conversation, I read it for other people. And so for me, my job is to get us to 50% in hopes that the reader will meet me at that other 50% line and we can see each other through the page essentially. We can be in conversation and in dialogue. Um, in this really spiritual and beautiful way for me. But that requires crafting. That requires, if you take any moment of your life and you try to distill it for narrative, you have to cut out ancillary characters. You have to cut out certain details because it doesn't fit neatly. A reader can't possibly follow that narrative. So I guess my hypothesis through that essay was that when when you render something to the page, when you create a piece of art, you're bringing it to a, a different plane that's no longer existing in, in memory and in reality. It's becoming a piece of art, and it's it's making a different step than the journaling or the remembering. It's, it's therefore different,
2: mm-hmm.
1: if that makes sense.
2: I love that idea of sort of a conversation with, a connection with the reader that one can't have when writing for the self alone. Mm-hmm. Sort of from that... Idea of a conversation with readers. Do you guys have any questions? Yeah, Janet. Hi. Hi. I was so interested in the that you just read in the use of the second person. Mm-hmm. And um, to put yourself in the first person with trauma is really, I have to be really reliving. And you were stepping
1: back from it, talking to yourself. Can you say more about that? Sure. I think. And I think anyone in the room who writes, I I think, might be able to relate that when we're writing at our best, sometimes it's almost this subconscious person coming through, and it's not deliberate choices when we're writing at our best. I think (laughs) when we're writing, it's the deliberate choices. It's the writer brain. I want to do this. I want to do that. But then sometimes this kind of possession kicks in, and something else happens. And we're not really sure how it happened. Um, And I think that was the case with this essay. The first memory that came to me was the line, a senior thinks you're cute, and that's still the first line of the essay. And because the word your was used in that line, my mind and body kind of took the your and the you as the subject of the piece without me realizing that I was doing it. So I never said, I want to write this in second person. It wasn't a conscious decision, it just, it happened. I was never interested in writing in second person because I think often it's really like stylized and it feels really false to me. Um, but when I realized I was doing it, I also realized that it was, it, it sounds a little, <laughs> it sounds a little woo, but I think it was my, my mind and my body doing it for a reason. I think it was both protecting me in a way and also I hope uh, the point of the essay is to reach out in kind of this more universal way that it is a a universal story and I definitely thought a lot about the end the very end it goes back to first person for two sentences and then it becomes a first person plural of us Um, and that was something I did consciously I, I tried to make that movement to make it feel purposeful but I did stand by that choice for the book because the essay itself was published that way, mm-hmm. then it became a book and they said, it needs to be consistent with the book. You need to change it to be first person. And I said, I wanna stand by this choice that it is the essay I want to be the most about outreach, I guess. Thank you.
2: I just wanna say that's really awesome that you stood by it. I feel like I might have Thank you. Like, allowed them to sway me.
1: It was a tough one. yeah. And I did try it for a page, and it wasn't the same piece.
2: Also, I don't think it's woo at all. We were just at a conference, and there was an entire panel on like channeling and using tarot and (laughs) crystals and stuff in your writing practice. So I I really don't think that's woo at all.
1: We're in LA, so I'm going to take back that I just said that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Other questions?
1: Mm-hmm. Did that come to you sort of through conscious
2: deliberation or did you say just otherworldly sort of inspirational as well?
1: Yeah. And, and if so before you wrote it during perhaps it? um the title was not my choice. A lot of people ask about the title. Most people like it. Um I give full credit to my agent and my editors for choosing it. I fought about the title <laughs> for three years. I didn't want it. Um I thought it was too long and no one re- would remember it and I thought it was really gendered and really young and I wanted people to take my book seriously. And the cover as well with the glitter and the color, like it didn't feel like me. Um, I think if my original title was The Rat's Mouth, which is the translation of Boca Raton and I wanted a kind of gothic cover and that feels like me. But I, <laughs> I had a good... Turning point when I realized that the book is actually not centered on the present me, the book is centered on the younger version of me, and this title and cover is true to that person, and that version of me is more important than this version um, and those things can coexist, but I wanted to support like the younger version of me who sprinkled glitter on an ad to be featured for a pen pal would <laughs> love this cover <laughs> and love this title and it's you know I'm not. I also realize that I'm pandering by trying to say, like, well, I want guys to read my book, so I want to change the title. Like, Those guys, the people who won't read my book because of the title, they're not going to read my book because of what it's about. So (laughs) why am I going to try to change what's right for the book so that some men will feel good about reading it? It's a good book. That's your own problem (laughs) if you don't want to read it. Um, So yeah, that's what I have to say about that.
2: Do you feel like it's being taken seriously?
1: I don't know yet. I hope so. I think so. I worked really hard, <laughs> so I hope so. I take it seriously. Thanks,
0: Janet.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I, I called people out on, on Twitter for this because a few men at reading said, I'm not going to read your book because it's got glitter. And I don't like That's the title. Insane. <laughs> so I wrote about it on Twitter. And <laughs> since then, it's only men requesting the book. They want to like prove that they're not that insecure. So it kind of worked as a tool. So I'm excited about that. All right. Thank you, Twitter. <laughs> yeah.
2: Everyone should read this book. Everyone. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. did you have like, a plan at that point how you were going to finish the book? was it such a perfect way of like, yeah that's a great question um, when I first submitted the book and signed the book it was just the first two sections um, the book is now made up of, of three it's a three act structure and it was only the two it was pretty short it was 120 pages when I sold it um, and now it's 320 so it definitely grew. Things were happening in real time. And when I first found out the main spoiler you're, you're referring to, and I don't care about spoilers, but maybe some of <laughs> you, <laughs> um, I thought this is the perfect ending. This is like a really happy ending. It, it, it gives light to a book that is otherwise pretty dark. And it felt really good to have that. And so then I started writing into that. And then I sent it to uh, my mentor, who's a writer I respect A great deal and he read it and he said this doesn't feel true to you and your lived experience because he knew personally I had discovered more secrets after the happy secret and he felt like it was a false ending that it was a bow tie (laughs) it was a bow on the end of a book and that's that's not true to my lived experience and so I went back to it and I wrote a new ending which is maybe not the crowd favorite, because it's so, it's kind of this big inhale moment of uncertainty and maybe some darkness, but it felt truer to, to my lived experience and I think most of our lived experiences, which is that we don't actually have this tidy, perfect shaped lived experience, it's always the unfinished story that is true. And it took grieving my father and going through death to realize that that existed. I think before we lose someone close to us, we have this idea that we'll have certain resolution or answers in our lives. And then when my dad died, before we worked through so many things and before I got so many answers, I I almost couldn't accept that. I was like, but it's not supposed to happen that way. You're supposed to go through this journey. You're supposed to find your resolution. And so in the end, the book became about that, became embracing the failure to actually conclude anything. Yes. Yeah, I, I wrote this book until it went to print, literally the day before. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Hi. I noticed in
0: the um, acknowledgments you made Heather Lewis, and she was somebody that I really thought of when I was reading, especially like the horse stuff, you know, and like the substance abuse and
1: things of that mm-hmm. nature. So I was just wondering what your relationship to her is. Thanks for asking. Um, Heather Lewis. She came to me as an adult. She was recommended to me by the great writer Mary Gateskill. And Mary Gateskill, if you know her work, is a pretty dark writer. And she said, This book is too dark for me. <laughs> and so I had to read it. <laughs> um, it was actually House Rules, yeah. Um, I worked as an editor on the Mare uh, Gateskill's book about horses because I'm an equestrian. And so she was reading all of these horse books. And she said, This one's a little too dark, but I think you might dig it and (laughs) I did, Um, and I think, and Heather Lewis, um, you know, may she rest, but I think she might hate this kind of reductive way of talking about it, but it really feels like, for me, her work is so, like, I always explain it as like, you can feel heat rising from the pages. Like, it feels so true. Like, nothing feels manufactured or, um, I don't know, which goes against everything I fight for, which is that everything is crafted. I have no doubt that she crafted everything precisely in her work, but you just feel it in a way that feels so visceral. And as this person who wrote some of the most, in my opinion, masterful pieces of work that were so overlooked and dismissed for a variety of reasons, for mental health, for her queer sexuality, um, I don't know. I just always want to bring her name into a room, so thank you. Yeah. You've written about
2: her, and have you written about? Yeah. Her? yeah, yeah. Here's a piece on Heather Lewis. Yes. I think we have one more. Yeah. Um, I know you already talked about the title, but just to dissect it a little further, um, the word "fatherless."
1: Mm-hmm. I was definitely thinking about um, negative space in the book, and where I choose to break off those fragmentations and where I choose to have gaps. Um, those gaps, those fragmentations, are really intentional, and I think I wanted that to play into this idea of like, what is fatherless? What is motherless? What is friendless? Communityless? Like, what is less really? And you know, I think it's an interesting point that somebody else calls me a fatherless girl. I don't own that title. And I think the title speaks to the tribe of people who, not necessarily those who have lost their father or those whose parents are addicts, but those who are always wrestling within that question of what is that less for me, if that makes sense.
2: If it's okay, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.